Alleged killer Brian Kohlberger was in court on Monday, May 22nd for his arraignment in the murders of four Idaho University students. He was supposed to have his preliminary hearing on June 26th of this year, but a grand jury indicted him on May 13th, making his preliminary hearing date vacated. And since the grand jury is something that is done in secret, it would be a sudden surprise to Brian and one month sooner than he expected to appear in court, and thus eliminating his preliminary hearing, which he may have been banking on. That's where the court determines if there is enough evidence to justify a trial. And with him being indicted by the grand jury, he skips this step. While I observed Brian's arraignment, I noticed a few interesting details that I will share with you in this video, especially the one thing Brian thought he'd do inconspicuously, but he didn't, and I caught it. And also one other detail between the judge and himself that surprised me. So now, let's get into it. Brian Koberger has been in jail since the end of December for the murders of four young, bright university students, 21-year-old Maddie Mogan and her best friend, 21-year-old Kaylee Gonsalves, Zana Kernodal, 20, and her boyfriend, Ethan Chapin, also 20. They were murdered on November 13, 2022 in Moscow, Idaho. They were found horrifically murdered in the home of Maddie, Kaylee, and Zana. While Zana's boyfriend, Ethan, was staying over for the night, they were all found stabbed multiple times and a knife sheath was left behind with DNA leading back to Brian Koberger from that sheath. Zana had defensive wounds suggesting she fought for her life and the killer broke into the house in the middle of the night, killed them and fled. There are two other roommates who were unharmed and one of the roommates witnessed the killer leave. And six months after the murder, Brian sat before the judge for his arraignment whose last name actually happens to be Judge, making him Judge Judge. How's that for destined career? In that arraignment, there were a few interesting observations regarding Brian's demeanor and behavior, along with extra details of what the future dates for his court hearings are and for his trial. But first, let's start with Brian in court. Brian entered the courtroom shackled and shuffling his feet to his seat. He did look over at the gallery and sat down next to his attorney, Ann Taylor. And Ann is a public defender. There was some controversy surrounding her a little while back as Ann was working with Zana's mom on unrelated charges in the past. But Anne withdrew her services the very day she was assigned to defend Zana's alleged killer, Brian. And Zana's mom said, I am heartbroken because I trusted her. She pretended that she was wanting to help me and to find out that she's representing him. I am heartbroken because I trusted her. I can't even convey how betrayed I feel. Anne also represented Maddie's dad and stepmom before the murders, her dad in 2020 and her stepmom in 2022. The concern was there was a conflict of interest, but Ann Taylor wasn't assigned to the felony investigation during that time, according to Ann. She told the judge that since she is the chief public defender in the area, her name would show on letterhead whether she was the acting attorney or not. She said she didn't have a relationship with Zana's mom nor any contact and never met her or gave her legal advice regarding a felony drug case or her 2017 
misdemeanor case. The other topic of controversy is regarding money because Anne is making a lot of money right now and people are questioning it. One person in particular has been very vocal about it and that's retired FBI agent Jennifer Koffendoffer. She stated, I was very surprised and let me tell you why. She is a government county employee. I can tell you that the law enforcement officers that were investigating that case, so 60 FBI agents, the same detectives, their salaries did not get doubled because they were working a quadruple homicide. I have been trying to research in the short period of time I have known about this. I have never known of something like this to happen with a public defender to have their salary increased. Her previous salary was noted as 119000 to 172000 probably depending on overtime figured into that. Now she could be making about 384000 and that is without overtime. And her co-counsel making 180 bucks an hour for 40 hours. So this is big, it's a lot of money, and I don't understand how they can do it. And speaking of Jennifer Koffendoffer, Jennifer was tweeting about a few things on the case recently, and she talked about Papa Roger hinting that perhaps there's more credence to it than we thought. And Papa Roger was a profile that was commenting on Facebook way back before Brian was arrested and was making comments that perhaps only the killer would know and also teasing a bit. And Papa Roger was thought to be potentially Brian Koberger. And although some people believe Papa Roger was related to a manifesto of an infamous incel, I had a different theory basing it solely on what was before me and those posts in Facebook. And it does connect many dots and many details. And the truth is in the details. You can check out that video at the end of this one or in the description box below. Now what's interesting is to see the interaction between Brian and his female lawyer in court. He occasionally looks over at his attorney and shoots her a smile, albeit awkward, and Brian is said to be a little awkward. And maybe he's even keeping tabs on her from side glancing. And I'd love to talk to some behavior analysts on this one. It would be an interesting topic of conversation. And also every once in a while, Brian does some side leering, not just to his attorney, but also it seems like he was trying to see what else is going on in the courtroom. Then the judge reads out the charges. Count one, burglary, that the defendant unlawfully entered 1122 King Road in Moscow with the intent to commit the felony crime of murder. Count two, murder in the first degree of Maddie Mogan. Count three, murder in the first degree of Kaylee Gonzalez. Now during the hearing, the judge pronounced her name wrong and kept saying Kayla. Kill and murder Kayla Gonzalez. And the family was not too happy about that, and rightly so. When this happened, it was said that Kaylee's sister was upset and the family was shaking their heads. But in happy news, Kaylee's sister had a baby girl back in February of this year, and her middle name is named after Maddie and Kaylee. Her name is Theodora Maddie K. Stevenson. And the baby was also in the courtroom the day of the arraignment. Now the family issued a statement after the arraignment and their attorney Shannon Gray also talked about it in an interview. He stated, it's hard to understand sometimes the pronunciations I guess of the victims of this case. There were some mistakes made today regarding that and I'm sure that those will be corrected in the future. You always want to feel that you're being represented and the victims are being represented in the case and so it was disappointing I think for a lot of members of the family 
when the judge did not properly pronounce a couple of the victims' names right, and I think that's something that will be corrected moving forward. Kaylee's dad talked about the case in general and said, I can't wait to see the evidence and then I'm gonna bring it. He said, and he's gonna realize that this is the family that's gonna make sure he doesn't get away with it. Steve has been very vocal throughout this entire investigation. Next, count four, murder in the first degree of Zana Kernodal. The judge also messed up her name, both the first and last. Zana Kernodal, excuse me. And the next count is count five, murder in the first degree of Ethan Chapin. Hopefully, the judge learns how to pronounce the names right, not only for the respect aspect, of course, but also so we don't have to hear it like nails on a chalkboard every time coming from him. It was bad enough that her own lawyers in Letitia Stouch's case kept calling her Letitia Stouch instead of the correct pronunciation of Stouch. And this happened for years, which was so painful and worse even during trial. But to get the victim's names wrong is, in my opinion, it's worse. As the judge was reading the charges out loud, Brian was following along on his own copy of the indictment. Now, this is an important point to remember, and I'll show you why in a minute. But first, when Brian responded to the judge, he didn't address the judge as your honor, which actually is surprising to me. Is it to you? Let me know below. Because with Brian being a criminology student and was working on his PhD, if anyone, he'd be the one you'd think to know how to address the judge, in my opinion. And Probably he does, yet he chose not to. He just answered yes or yes I do or no. You understand that? Yes I do. Okay, thank you. You understand these rights? Yes. Any questions about the rights? No. All right. He also seemed to sit quite still while the judge was talking. He was attentive. He nodded to the judge in understanding. He also has a weird thing that he does with his lips. He licked them too, but mostly this weird thing he does with his lips. I wonder if it's a concentration thing or his mind is going a mile a minute and it's a soothing type gesture, but he moved his lips like this. And from the side, it was like, you could just kind of see it every once in a while. And while the judge read the penalties, there was a lot of faster blinking going on as well. Again, maybe his mind was going a mile a minute, wondering like, holy crap, this is, you know, this is the charges being read, like holy now in previous videos, I had wondered who Brian could have targeted out of the four victims. And I mentioned, I believe it could be Maddie based on where the knife sheath was left and some other details and observations. I'll have that video playlist of the case below and also at the end. But today I believe it's still Maddie based on a few things I observed in court. He gets really fidgety when Maddie's name was read and his response was a yes. And the yes seemed different than others when he said he was understanding it. It was meeker in my opinion. And it was though the first name read, but it's still peculiar to me. Do you understand the charge in count one? Yes. Do you understand the maximum penalty? Yes. Do you understand the charge in count two, murder in the first degree? Yes. Do you understand the maximum penalty? Yes. It's the accumulation of details from his previous history that makes me believe even more that it's her, Maddie. One more thing about Maddie. Right before the judge reads out Maddie's charge and she's the first victim on the page, 
watch what Brian does because he looks back and he gives a little gesture, not really a smile, not really a smirk, not really, just kind of like a, I don't know. I wonder what's going through his head, but just take a look. A stacking of each observation, a pattern. Also an interesting piece of info, Brian had photos of one of the victims on his cell phone and several of them, it was said. They were found when his phone was confiscated by investigators after his arrest. And it was also said that Brian sent at least one of the messages over Instagram before the crime. And according to the unnamed investigator, they said he slid into one of the girl's DMs several times, but she didn't respond. Basically, it was just him saying, hey, how are you? But he did again and again. Another lawyer talked about this information and you may recognize her as she was one of the original lawyers we saw in the Lori Daybell case way, way back. She said, I understand Koberger fancied himself as intelligent, but as a criminology PhD student, it should have been abundantly obvious that maintaining pictures of one of the victims could prove to be problematic. Note, he just can't help himself. Even if he deleted the pictures, they could still be potentially recovered. The lawyer said perhaps he was just so arrogant, he thought he was smarter than investigators, but couldn't help but keep pictures that he could readily access. And that's his MO, in my opinion. He just can't help himself. That's his pattern. There's one more thing I noticed that really shows up. He just can't help himself but more on that in a moment. After the reading of the charges, Brian had to submit his plea, but instead of submitting guilty or not guilty, his lawyer announced that he will be standing silent. And Ms. Taylor, is Mr. Koberger prepared to plead to these charges? Your Honor, we will be standing silent. So what does that mean? When the defendant stands silent, there is an Idaho criminal rule which requires a judge to then enter a plea of not guilty on the defendant's behalf, which also means Brian doesn't have to verbally say whether he's guilty or not guilty. I think it's crafty and perhaps even a power move for Brian, again, in my opinion. I believe Brian would take great pleasure in this tactic, also in my opinion. So the judge then enters a plea of not guilty on behalf of Brian. Now, remember how I mentioned Brian was following along with his papers while the charges were being read? Well, there's one point in the arraignment that caught my attention. At one point in the hearing near the end, Brian grabs the papers he was reading from earlier and swaps the papers and organizes them in a way where he wanted to look at one page in particular. But he tries to act nonchalant about it leading up to it. But here's why I find this interesting. On page one, it has the general charges of burglary and lists four murder charges in the first degree without the victim's names on it. Plus, at the bottom of the page, it has the detailed burglary charge with the address of the home. And on page two is the murder charges for each victim in detail with their names. And on page three is just the signatures and the date. But now check this out. I believe he organized it so he can read the second page in detail and you see him looking down to read it. He takes the first page off, he shuffles it to, to arrange it and I believe that it's page two. And in page two, like I said, he'd be reading all the names that he allegedly murdered. Can't help himself and again, I think he'd take pleasure. So Brian's trial is now set for October 2nd of 2023, lasting four to six weeks, which would lead up to the one year anniversary of the murders. If it lasts the entire six weeks, it would end November 10th, three days before the anniversary. 
The prosecutors have 60 days from the arraignment date to announce if they are intending on going after the death penalty. So if we hear anything, it will be no later than mid-July. Now, if Brian gets the death penalty and is sent to death row, there's a bill that's passed in March of this year in Idaho that can implement the death by firing squad as an alternative to lethal injection. That law takes effect this July 1st and a firing squad will only be used if the drugs needed for lethal injection are unavailable. And officials are saying it's near impossible to get a hold of these drugs, which is said to be the preferred method, but they are saying death by firing squad is a more humane method of execution. I'm curious about what your thoughts are on this. Let me know below. So authorities have the option to order death by firing squad only if these drugs aren't available, but within five days of a death warrant being issued. I would not want to be in that firing squad. I don't know about you. And it's said that eight people in total, seven men and one woman are currently on death row in Idaho. The question is, will Brian Koberger be the eighth? And will Chad Daybell be the ninth? The last person to be executed by firing squad was convicted killer Ronnie Lee Gardner in Utah in 2010. He was on death row for killing a guy during an attempted escape, it was reported, from a courthouse back in 1985. Idaho's latest and last execution by lethal injection was in 2012. His name was Richard Levitt. He was on death row for the murder of a young woman he stabbed and brutally horrifically mutilated in 1984. The day before she was killed though, she reported him prowling around her house. And he maintained that he was not guilty until the end, but evidence was stacked up against him and there were reports from his ex-wife of some disgusting, like gross behavior he'd do. I'll just leave it at that. Now back to this case, the judge sealed the grand jury list of witnesses. Prosecutors said by doing this, it will preserve Brian's right to a fair trial while also preventing harassment. Because something went down because the prosecution wrote to the judge and said, the state respectfully represents to the court that it has received numerous complaints from potential or prospective witnesses or their families and associates regarding being harassed both in person and via social media. The reports of harassment have included threats as well as what appears to be intimidation. After his arraignment, there was another hearing regarding the gag order in the case. They had technology issues at the beginning of it. Karam, you are muted. Well, now I can't hear you. Maybe it's my, my problem. Barely. Yeah, our screen is muted. Okay. Now let's open it up. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Okay, say, say something, Mr. Perone. Up, oh, still, I don't know. And I couldn't help but think, because it reminded me of the issues they had in a cat video while a, a while ago. It was actually a court video. It went viral where you hear one of the lawyers ask if the judge could hear him, and then he had a filter on of a cat, and he couldn't get it off. It was pretty funny. Have a look. Mr. Ponton, I believe you have a filter turned on in the video settings. 
you might want to uh, uh, take, take we're a trying look. to we're tr can you hear me judge I can hear you I think it's a filter it, in the it is and I don't know how to remove it I've got my assistant here she's trying to but uh, I'm prepared to go forward with it that's I'm here live, it's not, I'm not a cat. So with the gag order, people can't comment on the case and we won't be able to know the extra details or anything new coming out until that gag order is lifted. On February 6th, the Associated Press and other local Idaho media outlets filled a motion to get rid of the gag order and said it was a violation of First Amendment rights. And even though the judge agreed to a hearing in June regarding that and whether or not cameras will be allowed in the courtroom in the future, he had some stern words to say. He said, irreparable harm goes both ways, arguing that First Amendment is absolute, is also troubling. The Associated Press needs to tone it down. The judge said it concerns him about some of the coverage from certain media outlets and said, there is a lot of irreparable harm from the media that is affecting a fair trial. This is a very high profile case. We all have constitutional responsibilities to the First and Sixth Amendment. What I am seeing in the newspaper is no discussion about the importance of the Sixth Amendment, which the Sixth Amendment is the right of the defendant. And the Sixth Amendment guarantees the rights of criminal defendants, including the right to a public trial without unnecessary delay, the right to a lawyer, the right to an impartial jury, and the right to know who your accusers are and the nature of the charges and evidence against you. Upcoming dates of these motion hearings are on June 9th, for the Gonsalves family motion and also the Associated Press. On June 27th, there are defense uh, motions that will be heard and here at It's a Crime, I'll be following that. And one last thing, Brian may have stood silent, but his sister sure didn't. In a recent report from NBC's Dateline, it was revealed that Brian's sister was concerned that her brother may have been involved in the murders. She said that Brian's behavior grew increasingly suspicious over the holidays and it got to the point where it was said that family members Several family members conducted a search of Brian's white Hyundai Elantra, which is a car that was sought out by the authorities back in Idaho. His family lived in Pennsylvania, and the family searched his vehicle, hoping to uncover possible evidence related to the crime. And while Brian was at home, his family also noticed some peculiar behavior, like he was consistently wearing latex gloves, even while around in the house. The sister talked about her concerns, mentioning how he lived near the crime scene and that he drove that white Hyundai Elantra that was yet to be identified. It was said that Brian's dad though defended Brian, but the family members were concerned enough to go through Brian's car. But at that point, police already witnessed Brian cleaning his car with bleach. So the family members didn't find anything of significance while searching, but they can't do the forensics either, obviously, like the authorities can. And I do wonder what Brian's thoughts were about the surprise indictment and in the arraignment. I'm sure, though, it was so very tough for the families who attended in court to see Brian. Imagine the emotions in that. And I hope the judge can get the victim's names right, and although... He gave a stern warning in the media. The media can be a good thing. And those who truly want to help, like some of the public and some YouTubers and some other media, social media content creators, it could be good. But like I said, Brian can't help himself. It's his pattern from leaving the knife sheath to the way the victims were killed and not one but four going back to the scene of the crime a day later the, or the morning later, I guess. 
um, the high possibility of Brian commenting as Papa Roger because he couldn't help himself all the way to sitting in court and wanting and needing to read that second page. Check out my Papa Roger video here and the entire playlist here. There's more coming. Thank you so much for watching. We'll see you in the next video. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.